morning. It's good to be celebrating spring <laughs> and, uh, and Easter as well. So this, during the season of Easter, we, over the next uh, few weeks as we make our way to Pentecost, we'll be looking at a passage that's in the book of Acts. Uh, it's a New Testament book it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the Acts of the risen Christ. As Christ, the one who has risen to life, begins to call and gather his church together. And it's worth mentioning as we gather here and we think about the reality of Easter and gather to worship that we gather not to memorialize Jesus' life, but as the passage was read and as we gather, we remember that we gather in the presence of the living Christ, that Christ is the one who has called you and is gathering you, the one who has defeated sin and death. And so we gather in Christ's presence and he gathers his church and we saw last week, we looked at Acts 2, that part of what was happening is the church was gathered and formed by the proclamation of the gospel. The church is a community formed by proclamation. This morning, we'll look at Acts 4 and see that the church is a community marked by prayer. The church is a community marked by prayer. Before we move into that, though, as this passage that we'll look at this morning, it brought to mind a passage from a novel that I'm familiar with, and the passage reads like this. Adults follow paths, children explore. Adults are content to walk the same way hundreds of times or even thousands. Perhaps it never occurs to adults to step off the path, to creep beneath the bushes or to find spaces between the fences. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, if that's the difference between adults and children. My sense is sometimes children act like adults and sometimes adults might act like children in that sense. But that passage, those lines made me think about my own path that I take, the way I walk to work or walk in the neighborhood, the roads or trains that we take to school or take to our office or take to different errands. Where do we walk and what paths do we walk upon? And whether it is walking a path that we have settled upon or one that we're familiar with, or whether we are exploring new places, what is it like when our path is blocked? What is it like when the path that we had settled upon or the one that we are exploring for the first time is difficult, doesn't go the way that we want it to go? If you're like me, it can be frustrating, right? It can be confusing. When I mentioned that image, you can think about what it's like to have your way changed or challenged or blocked because that is the scenario that we find in Acts 4. Peter and John were told by Jesus to go and tell others about him. But as they go and do so, the authorities, the rulers, the leaders over them and over the city of Jerusalem tell them to stop. And we see that in response to this, the church prays. The church prays. And it's a prayer that is from a, thousand, a couple thousand years ago, but it's a prayer for you and for me. It's a prayer for the church. And it can be said any time, especially in times of tension or of difficulty, especially when the path that we're walking is blocked or not what we expect, especially when identifying with Jesus and his way brings cost or difficulty. Maybe we experience that with tension with others, those close to us or those afar. Maybe it's a tension with the spirit of the air, of the culture, what it directly or indirectly tells us how things should be or even tension within us. I'm sure all of us can relate to finding ourselves longing or 
thinking of a path that is in conflict with or in contrast with the path that Jesus invites us to walk? What is it like when the path that we've settled on or the path that we're exploring does not go as we expect or is blocked? When the face of the challenge, the face of the cost, the church becomes a community marked with prayer. And so let's look at Acts 4. This is verse 23, verse 31. Following your order of worship or your Bible. When they, that is Peter and John, the apostles, were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, take, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had, were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you've called us and gathered us here. Lord, we thank you that you are the risen one, that you see us, that you have concern and interest in our lives, and that you've called us here to hear your word. We pray that we will respond in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Acts 4, where our passage is found, it starts with Peter and John telling a gathered crowd about Jesus' resurrection. And it tells us that the passage goes along that the chief priests and some of the leaders of the temple heard this and they became greatly annoyed that they were talking about Jesus and talking about the resurrection. And so the leaders, those who had authority, arrested John and Peter, and they took them in custody. And while they were in custody, the chief priests brought them before the council and warned and charged them to no longer speak about Jesus. After this warning, Peter and John were released. And that's where our passage I just read picks up. Upon their release from the authorities, Peter and John returned to the place of their fellow apostles, their fellow believers, they come home and they tell them what has happened and the church community responds in prayer. And as we can picture the church praying in response to this difficult event, I want us to ask, to, to think about what are we, individually or as a community, what, what are we doing when we pray? What are we doing when we pray? Now, if you're listening, that you think to yourself, I would think most likely that, that is a, that's a significant question. It's a mysterious question. There's a lot of things that we could talk about prayer and what's happening in prayer. But I want us to think about what is it that we are doing? What is a person or a community doing when they respond in prayer? There's a number of things we could say, but if we look at the prayer in our passage, we see that the prayer has three parts. 
an invocation, a quoting of Scripture, and a petition. And if we look at those three pieces, those three parts, we begin to see what it is that we do, what, what we are affirming when we pray. The invocation, we affirm God. We affirm that there is some personal being other than ourselves that has power. There's a quoting of Scripture that, again, we affirm that not only is there a God that exists, but that God is interested in us, interested in the world, is active in it, has revealed himself. And there is a petition where we affirm our place in that activity. We affirm our place in the work that God is doing in the world. So the rest of our sermon, I want to look at each of those parts and think about those affirmations that we make as we pray, individually or as a community. So let's start, let's look at the invocation. Do you see how the prayer begins after Peter and John come back? It starts with an address to God. An invocation, that word, simply means to call on someone for assistance, to call outside of yourself for help. And it might sound obvious, but Christian prayer starts with the affirmation of a personal being beyond us. We pray because there is a God, because a God is there. Do you see how they address this God? Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David spoke by the Holy Spirit. This invocation identifies God as the sovereign Lord, as the creator of all, and as the one who speaks by the Holy Spirit. Lord, creator, and proclaimer of truth. This is the God that is being affirmed and addressed. The title Sovereign Lord is a common way in the Old Testament to speak of God. In one place, Daniel, when Jerusalem was falling to the Babylonian army, falling to outside forces, Daniel prays, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. The Sovereign Lord. The title communicates dominion. It communicates, when one is saying it, dependence. And I don't know what it's like for you when you cry out or when you speak to God. It simply can simply be Lord. Just to say God's name is to acknowledge that there is one who is present, one other than yourself, one other than those who might be mistreating you. Lord, hear me. Pay attention. Well, this sense of dependence, this title of dependence continues, and it's clarified. You see, the sovereign Lord is affirmed as the creator of all. The heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. It's a way of saying everywhere we could imagine, every place that exists, God has dominion over such places. And so the sovereignty of God, the, the activity of this God is everywhere. I'm sure you can think about the significance of that, right? That when we say no matter, we pray no matter who we are, no matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter our circumstances, this title, this invocation is saying that God can be called out to for all that takes place takes place under this God's dominion. We cannot find ourselves apart or outside of God's concern. 
God is Lord, God is creator. And one other aspect is mentioned that God speaks. Through his people such as David, by the Holy Spirit, God has revealed himself, God has spoken to his people. And this title, this part of the invocation, transitions us to the second part of the prayer, the quoting of the scripture from Psalm 2, the part that we sang in the beginning of the service. What do we do when we pray? Well, we affirm that God is present, but we do more than that. We affirm not simply that there is a power that exists, but that God, that power can be known, that God has revealed himself. God has spoken by God's word that we may know God and know God's ways. God has made himself known. And part of what that means is that God is interested in this world. God is active in this world. It's interesting, I don't know how it strikes you, that the prayer that was offered was a prayer that included a, a quotation from the Scriptures. Sometimes we can think about, you know, in our spiritual life, that reading the, the Bible or praying, that these are two distinct things. And, and they can be, but, but we see numerous times in the Scriptures here a praying of the, script, praying of the Scriptures. That part of praying to God, part of engaging with God, affirming God, is, is remembering the things that God has said. Letting those things pour over us and affect us. Letting those things form how we feel or affect how we're out, seeing our outlook. The other day I was at my son's baseball game and I was going to ride my bike from Wells Park to another place in the city to go meet my daughter Lila. And uh, I was, you know, it was a place that I knew I was familiar with, but I still wanted to look at Google Maps to tell me, you know, the best route. I don't know if you ever do that. Even if I know where I'm going, I want to know how long it's going to take me. I want to know, you know, the best route to take. Maybe there's like a secret, you know, change I'm supposed to go. So I was going to look for, you know, the best bike path. But for whatever reason, in this kind of this spot in Wells Park, I could not get a signal on my phone. There was no Wi-Fi. There was no signal. And my Google map kept telling me, try again, try again. And so I thought, what am I going to do? You know, what, what a great problem, right? How do I get to this space I know of on my bike? Fortunately, my other daughter, Grace, arrived, and her phone had a signal. She was kind enough to look it up for me, tell me how long it would take. But if we can picture right, that, the, the role of maps in our life, not just map, though, telling us where we are and kind of what that map means. That's how Psalm 2 is functioning in this prayer. It's, it's like opening a map. It's, it's opening and seeing the, the landscape. We can't understate the significance. The church, they have had this experience with the resurrected Christ where they're trying to understand what that means and who they are. And in the midst of that understanding, there are people telling them to stop, that what they're doing is a problem. They need to be quiet. And the church is trying to understand that. And as they unfold this map, as they unsee this landscape from Psalm 2, there's three features on that map. There's three parts of that map that are so important to them why they pray it. One in Psalm 2 is messianic. It means that traditionally throughout God's people, Psalm 2 was a reference to the one who was going to come. If God is going to reveal himself, then the, the chief way, the, the full way that God would make himself known was through the anointed one or through the Messiah or through his son. And Psalm 2 speaks of that one who is coming. But not only is it messianic, it speaks of opposition. 
that when God reveals himself, when the anointed one arrives, Psalm 2 says we should expect that there would be resistance and opposition. The prayer references the opening verses of Psalm 2. Lord, why do the nations, why do the people and the rulers and the kings, why do they rage against you and your anointed one? Why do they rage and plot in vain against the Son? You see, in the prayer, the church takes this word from God and applies it to their experience. They find themselves in this landscape. In this city, it says, their prayer. In this city, Jerusalem, we saw this. In this city where we're gathered, we saw people act against Jesus, your servant. We saw Herod and Pilate, these kings and rulers. We saw Gentiles and the people of Israel, the nations and God's people. We saw them respond in rage against this one who had come to reveal God. See, the psalm speaks of opposition, but that map also speaks of reversal. Psalm 2 was a precious psalm to the church because it said that there would be rage and plotting and opposition against God's anointed one, but that God, in the face of all this rage, all this plotting, that he would establish his, his son's throne forever. The plotting would be in vain, for God would raise Christ up and put him above all things. And therefore, the church could proclaim that this Jesus is the stone that you rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. They could proclaim, You killed the author of life, but God raised him to life again. This sonship, this opposition, and this reversal tell the story of Jesus. And the church is trying to remember it and hold on to it and understand it by praying and claiming God's activity in the world. I want to dwell for a moment on that map. Think about the significance of what that reality is saying, that there is opposition and reversal. When the sun appears, the cross and the resurrection they are fundamentally what we call anti-religious. It's important that the church, we hear this, that when Christ appeared and was put to death and rose, it was fundamentally against the religious establishment, fundamentally against human virtue, fundamentally against the idea that humans could rise up in their morality and take hold of God or take hold of what is good. You see, when God appeared, the earth responded in opposition the idea that God's power would threaten their own power. And therefore, the cross, the gospel of Jesus from its very beginning is not about human virtue, not about humans finding their way to what is right, some humans being better than other humans. None of that is part of the gospel. The gospel says that humans are broken and rebellious at the depths that you and I are. And the gospel proclaims in the midst of that the depths of God's love and grace for you. There is no arrogance. For the boldness of the, the apostles is not rooted in them. The message is not rooted in them, but is rather rooted in God's activity even in the face of our opposition. You see, this story of opposition and reversal, it tells the story of Jesus, but it also tells the story of the church. And that brings us to the third and final part of the prayer where they make a petition to God. The petition being saying that God exists and God is active in the world and now we want to find our place 
and God's activity. We want to find our place in God's larger story. And so they pray. They pray knowing that there is opposition to the path of Christ. Not just opposition out there, but opposition within our own hearts. They identify with the anointed son and they pray, Now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servant to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of the Holy One, Jesus. Do you see what they pray for? Boldness and healing. You know, Psalm 2, you might have heard it in the beginning of the service. Psalm 2 is interesting because part of the reversal is that it proclaims that there will be a, a mocking and a shattering and a judgment for those who stand against God. And it's possible, having referenced Psalm 2, that we could picture the church praying, God, take care of those people who are not nice to us. Judge them, bring your wrath upon them, make them suffer. We could see the church praying in that way. But that's not what happens. The prayer is very different. It's a prayer to be empowered to speak with boldness the good news of Jesus. And it's also for healing. Healing and wonders and renewal for their neighbors. For their neighbors. It is not, Lord, even take away this obstacle from my path. It is not, Lord, make these other people suffer instead of us. But rather, look on their threats that we may go and proclaim this good news boldly to all and that we may continue to work and you may bring wonders in the name of Jesus. Preaching and healing, this two-part mission for the church to tell the story of Jesus, to be the people, the signposts of the living Christ, the kingdom. Do not answer threats with threats, but rather pray that you may proclaim good news and offer healing in God's name. There is humility, not arrogance. For we know the power of God does not rest in our hands, but we are signposts of what God can do. And as we close, I just want to maybe think about why is this the prayer? Instead of calling down curses, why is the prayer for boldness and for healing? It's because of Jesus, right? If we're trying to find our story and his story, our story and his opposition and reversal, then we remember that Jesus told you and me to love our neighbors, even our enemies. He tells us to pray for those who persecute us, who would block or make difficult the path that we feel that we are called to walk upon. And this is a powerful example of Jesus teaching his people to respond nonviolently to oppression. The church's ethics and mission marked not by power and dominion or getting their way, but by proclamation and serving, healing. So what are we doing when we pray? What do you do when we pray? Our passage invites us to see that we are affirming that we're not alone, that there is a God, and that God has revealed himself to us primarily in the person of Jesus, and that God has invited us to know his grace and to share it. It might not be as beautiful or as poetic as our passage, (laughs) Psalm 2 or Acts 4, but I encourage you to cry out to your Lord, to call out to God, to remind yourself that you're not alone. And I encourage you to have the Bible open and the Psalms and the New Testament to pray and let the words pour over you that you would know 
who God is and his interest, and that interest would form how you see God in your place and what God's doing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of the gospel, that Christ is not dead, but has risen. As we gather with our needs and our worries and our despair, that we do not speak to one who is just in the past, but one who is alive and present. We pray that you'd hear us and that you'd care for us as your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.